thank Pat Barrett with all my heart. And that's the honest truth. It looks like there's a lot of respect there. I saw you two embracing for quite a while at the end of the fight. What were you saying to each other? I was saying, I love you, Pat. I literally said to him, I love you. I said, you, if one thing about me, Tunde J, I don't, I don't have no hatred, no malice for no human being. All I've got in my heart is love. And I love Pat Barrett, I love Lyndon, and I want the best for them. I've always been that, but as I said at the press conference, it's a fight. It's a fight, and uh, after the fight, I think we saw how much respect there is between me and Pat. So welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where Uncle Tunde is right, yet again, as he seems to always be pretty much. You know, we have to we have to start tipping our hats off to to Uncle Tuns for for many reasons. But one, sticking to his guns. Now, I'm I'm very big on on you know, elements that make you a man, and one of the elements that has to make you a man is the ability to stick to your guns when you believe you're doing the right thing. And he did, and he was proved right massively. But really, I want to talk about this Yard Arthur fight because. It touches on so many elements that make boxing fascinating and so hard to read and so hard to predict. And having watched that fight, the question I still have in my head is, what does it take to be ready for that moment? Because when that moment hits, you almost don't get advanced warning, you don't get preparation, you don't get a handbook of how to deal with it. A year and two weeks ago, Lyndon Arthur was another plucky contender in the light heavyweight division. If you'd asked most boxing fans, they'd have said, he's good, but, you know, he doesn't take people out and we'd like to see more knockouts, right? That's what people said. And the consensus was, this should be a routine fight for Anthony Yard, pick up another trinket, position himself for a world title fight. What Lyndon Arthur was able to do was upset the boogies and upset the apple cart. That's what he was able to do. And he's a boxer. He's a good boxer. He's a hell of a boxer. He's a tough man. He's a strong man. But what did that moment do to him? All of a sudden, you're one of the golden names in British boxing. The fans love you because you beat someone who, for whatever bizarre reason, people didn't quite take to. I'm going to say it diplomatically. I'll talk about it you know, in stronger language later on. But... People were happy that Yard had lost. In the same way, they were happy that he lost to Kovalev, right? And so Lyndon Arthur gets elevated, like, massively. Like, the, it's a life-changing moment for Lyndon Arthur because now you're, you're nationally known. You're not just someone known to the amateur fans and the hardcores. You're now nationally known. What does that moment do to you? For some people, and I've seen it with, with my own eyes, they train harder. Some people will train less. Some people go and party and go and enjoy themselves. We got to see this, right? And you saw with Denzel, when Denzel made British champion, man, that might be the greatest celebration of winning a belt of all time, but it came at a cost. It came at a cost. But that moment changed him. Not necessarily for the worse, it just changed him. Dan Aziz is facing that moment now. 
Dan was the plucky underdog and he upset the apple cart. And now he's British champion and his world has changed. What's that moment going to do to Dan Aziz? When you walk around your area, now everyone knows you. Now everyone wants to be next to you. Has Dan Aziz got it in him to say, look, I'm still a professional boxer. There's certain things I can't do. That's the process Dan's going through now. He's level-headed and he's intelligent. He will hopefully make the right calls. But that's what Dan's going through right now. Without being on the inside, it's hard to see what that would have done to Lyndon Arthur. Because Lyndon's quite level-headed publicly. He doesn't give too much away one way or the other. Every so often, the, the, the mank in him will come out 100%. But generally, he holds it true. But what, what we've now understood is he was carrying a heavy load. It was easy to come in as a plucky underdog against Golden Boy Anthony Yard. It was harder to be in a battle for who's going to be Frank's Golden Boy. Different dynamics, different psychology. It needed a different approach. What was worrying watching the build-up in the fight was you never got the feeling that they'd done anything different. You know, the language of the interviews was, I just need to be the best version of Lyndon Arthur and I can beat the best version of Anthony Yard. Okay, fine. But it can't be that same Lyndon Arthur that was there last year. And I wonder if that was part of the planning process for this rematch. Because I don't know how much noise they made about wanting the fight in Manchester. I don't know how much noise they made about, you know, we need it on favourable terms. It just kind of seems that, for, as an outsider looking in, that Team Arthur was happy to be part of the ride. And, and it's a shame because what we needed on Saturday night, what we really needed were both men going at it, hammer and tong, putting it all on the line. And I don't think we got that. So normally what you want to do when you're looking at an opponent and you're looking at, you know, matching up, you just get a sheet of paper and you write things down. And you write the things that, that will never change. So the, the immovables, right? Everyone's got them. Uh, you pick Manny Pacquiao. Manny's, Manny's immovable is pace. Manny will always fight at the same pace, same intensity. You'll never see him, you know, try and win a fight on the back foot. Not him. Right? He'll never change that. And you list all of these things down, right? And you arrive at a, a generalized view of your boxer and your opponent. And then you look at the things that could be variable because they may have done them in some fights but not others. And you go, okay, so we need to prepare for these other scenarios. That's okay, fine. Anthony Yard's a combination puncher. Right? No one's going to dispute that. Anthony Yard is a combination puncher. That's how he finishes people. That's what he does when he's got you hurt. So what you don't want to do in that position under any situation is put yourself back on the ropes. That doesn't make any sense. What are you actually looking for when you hit the ropes? You know, it's not WWE wrestling where you can slide to the ropes and tag someone in. Once you're on the ropes, you essentially can't go any further back. It's just logic. And I guess a combination puncher is the worst place to be. If you're Anthony Yard, the ropes are your friend. So there had to be a concerted effort on the part of Lyndon Arthur to say, look, at some point in this fight early on, I have to stand in the middle and show dominance in the middle. If he wants to go combinations, we'll go combinations. If he wants to go single shots, we'll go single shots. But I have to let him know there's no level he can go to where I can't meet him. 
Now, when that didn't happen in the first round, the psychology changes now. Now, if you're Anthony Yard, what you're saying is, I can hurt this guy. I knew I could hurt him. Oh my God, I can hurt him. Let me turn it up a little bit. He's got to fight back at some point. And maybe you get halfway through that second round and your corner is now starting to think, I don't think Lyndon's going to do anything different. He's hoping we gas out. Well, we don't plan to go the distance today. And that seemed to be Team, T- team Yard's tactics. Then you said Team Tunde there, sorry. That seemed to be the tactics. The tactics seemed to be, we're not, we're not leaving this to the judges because we didn't trust them last time. So if that's the plan, if Anthony Yard has said, look, I'm going to let my hands go, and if in that first round he actually lets his hands go, there has to be something in the corner that says, you've got, you got to nullify this. And you're not going to nullify that by going backwards. It just doesn't work. But sometimes as a boxer, if going backwards is all you know, you'll never change that. You won't because in Lyndon Arthur's case, it had worked in every fight up until that point. So he had every right to say, I'm going to stick to my guns. Why, why would I change what works? It's absolute insanity. Fine. But then you get to rounds three and especially round four. Now you need something. Now you need that now. So you need that ability to, to tie things up. And once you're pinned on the ropes in that corner, it's too late. And if you watch that back, just look at the talk that Anthony Yard's getting into those shots. Even the ones that are hitting arms are hurting. Anything that's not hitting head or, or abdomen, it's all hurting. And it's asking you a question. Can you match what's coming, what's coming at you? Can you fire that back? And we never saw that from Lyndon Arthur. The way I describe this fight is Lyndon Arthur never got out the blocks. I can't tell you why. Only he can tell you why. He may have to say, I face someone who's a lot better than me. And that may be the case. He may say he was underprepared. That may be the case. Maybe he was injured. No idea. What I do know for absolute certain is Anthony Yard came up the traps with a point to prove, and I don't think Lyndon Arthur did. I genuinely thought the, the low-key approach he was taking was, a, was an approach to just conserving energy. I thought, well, Lyndon doesn't want to get too deep into it. He's just having a laugh and a joke. He's, he's deflecting things. He's diffusing the tension. Fine, that's all good. But he fought the same way. That's the real shame because he's talented. Do I think Lyndon Arthur could stand and trade with anyone? 100%. He's a grown man. He's been boxing for long enough. It needed to happen on Saturday night and it didn't. And as fans, we reward the people that do it on Saturday night. That's why we love Fury. It's why we love Joshua. It's why we love Canelo. It's why we love Josh Taylor. It's why we love... No, no matter what I think about him, that's why people love Sonny Edwards. Because when the lights come on, they deliver what they're capable of delivering. And more often than not, it gets them the win. And I, I just don't think Aunt, uh, Lyndon Arthur's true ability came out on Saturday night, and, but that's the only time it counts. He might be better than Anthony Yard today but it was Saturday night where it really counted and we didn't see it. So what are the respective trainers? So if we go back a year ago, Pat Barrett's star rose. 
know, people started to look and go, well, he's got Linden. Linden just beat Anthony Yard. He's got Zalfa. And that whole Collie Hurst and Mostyn gym was sprinkled with that magic dust. Well deserved, by the way, because they have actually produced damn good boxers over time. It's not a myth. The quality they produce is not a myth. Lyndon Arthur's ABA championship is not a myth. Zalfa Barrett's talent's not a myth. None of the success attributed to that club is a myth. And Pat was finally getting his day in the sunlight. Right? He was getting the praise he deserved. He got his roses. Now, the problem was, at the same time people were elevating Pat Barrett, they were tanking Tunde Ajayi. Right? Factually, they were tanking him. And the anti-Tunde camp had many flavors, right? So let's break it down. There were the people who just don't like Tunde, right? And if they probably don't like Tunde-type people at work. They don't like Tunde-type footballers, right? There's some people who are just like, mate, just, just do your job. I don't want to hear from you, right? And that's an objective statement. doesn't matter who you are. don't want to hear from you. Then there are the people who dislike Tunde because they're like, I don't feel you deserve the success you've got. What have you really done? And they're the people who genuinely think that they could have taken Anthony Yard and made him a success, right? Even though they've never trained a person in their life, they genuinely think that they could take Anthony Yard and make him a success. They genuinely think that they could put in those hours, take him to all of these different places where he has to go. They could do all of that stuff, manage the logistics, manage this, manage that. They genuinely believe they could do all of that themselves because it's that easy, right? So they dislike Tunde because they're like, mate, I could do what you're doing and it looks like you're messing up. And then there's the camp, and I think this is the biggest camp, of people who genuinely hate the idea of Tunde Ajayi being a black man making a lot of money and being successful and being unashamed with it and being vocal with it. And these are normally the same people who hate Spencer Fearon for being black and vocal too. They exist. And I know at this point, some people are going to now tweet me and say, mate, this is when I turned off the podcast. I didn't want to get into all of that. You're probably part of the problem, right? You're probably part of the problem. And if this is making you uncomfortable enough to turn off the podcast, by all means, Go about your business, go and do your thing. Not the audience I want. That camp exists. And when people say, what do you base that on, Terry? I've seen Anthony Yard's inbox, and I've seen O'Hara Davis's inbox, and I've seen Tunde Ajayi's inbox. Anecdotally, I've heard from other black fighters and trainers about what they've received. But those are the ones where I've seen the abuse they get. And you can tell me that it's bot accounts, it's burner accounts, fine. But someone's writing this stuff. Someone's thinking this stuff and someone's targeting it at Tunde. It's a problem. And here's why it's a problem. We can only judge a trainer's ability on what they do with what they have. Now, Tunde took a young man, and I don't want to rehash my In Defense of Tunde episode please go and find that one in the archives. It's a good one. But I do want to say this. He took a kid that no one else wanted to touch. Remember this. Tunde Ajayi took a kid that no one else wanted to touch. Yeah? He built a gym of what you can call problem children. O'Hara Davis, um, Otu, his nephew, Anthony Yard, 
at various points, Craig Richards and other people were in there as well, right? He took a gym of problem children, gave them structure, gave them discipline, made them animals, and got them signed. Let me say that again. He took a group of problem children and got them signed as professional boxers, gave them a focus in life. Ben Davison never did that. Shane McGuigan doesn't do that. Not interested. He runs a business. Ben Davison runs a business. Adam Booth runs a business, hence Liam Williams. He runs a business. These guys run businesses. Angel Fernandez runs a business. Rob McCracken runs a business. They don't take problem children on. They exclude problem children. So you see what Don Charles, Tunde Jai, Brian O'Shaughnessy and other black trainers have to do? They have to take these problem children, guys that the system has decided they don't want to touch and they make something out of them. And it's only once these guys become something that you hear this negativity. It's only after they've won a, a southern area, an English, a British or something. Now all of a sudden, other trainers think they can do a better job. Oh, well, if he was with me, I'd do this. Caldwell's a good example of that. There are others. I've, I've known you know, guys like Mark Tibbs will do something similar. And it's not a bad thing because, remember, they run a business. Yeah? They run a business. Tunde has Ant Niyad. He sees him as like a nephew. That's not a business. Partly, yeah, but not fully. So when you criticize Tunde, you're not measuring like with like. Because none of the other trainers you talk about have ever taken problem children and made them successful. Saturday night, Pat Barrett showed what you can do with a problem child. And Tunde Jai showed what you can do with a problem child. Why the public don't praise them as trainers for dealing with essentially problem children, factually problem children. In a, in a parallel universe, those two guys are probably serious guys in their respective areas. Yet people will criticize Tunde, right? And let's, let's look at the typology and the, just the, the lay of the land in terms of why people criticize Tunde. The first thing people say is, he doesn't know what he's doing in the corner. What? What? He doesn't know what he's doing in the corner. So let me just explain something so, so fans can understand. Doing a corner is not hard. Okay? It's not hard. Get the stool in. Make sure the water's set up. The gum shield's got to come out. Um, if there are cuts and bumps and bruises, the cut man gets to work straight away, right? Everyone's got their role. It's like a pit stop in Formula One. It's hard to get wrong. But it's really significant in how the race pans out. So when people say Tunde doesn't know what he's doing in the corner, it's a lie. He may not be doing what you want him to do, but he knows what he's doing in the corner because, surprise, surprise, he knows his fighter better than you do. And a lot of people who say this have never been in the corner. And the ones that have disgraced the sport by criticizing him. Because I could look at anyone's corner and tell you, oh, that's terrible corner work. It, same way that someone can look at what I do and go, mate, that's terrible corner work. 
But here's something you need to understand between the... Uh, here's something you need to understand about the fighter and trainer relationship. And let me break it down like this. I want to speak from my own experience. And if others who listen to this can relate, cool. When I train someone, especially if I train them from zero, what I am giving them is my boxing language. Okay? It is my boxing language. My own unique set of syntax and phrasing and grammar and so forth, right? That all comes together as my boxing language. So when I train someone year after year, what we do is we take what is a pretty big boxing vocabulary and we master it. And we master it so well that we no longer talk in complete sentences. I don't know if anyone's ever been involved in artificial intelligence or machine learning, but that's the aim of machine learning. Machine learning is to, the aim of machine learning is essentially to increase the accuracy of the output while minimizing the number of inputs required, right? So you want to be as efficient as possible. And it's the same with boxing. Once you've mastered this language I'm talking about, and I know people say you can never master system nine, cool. But once you master this language, I can now talk in shortcuts. I can talk in slang, so to speak. And that will be impenetrable to anybody else who doesn't understand it. So I've been in corners before and I've said, see out the fight. That was my only instruction, see out the fight. You've done well, you've won these last two rounds, you've put him down, I want you to just go and see out the fight. Now, if I'm sat next to Winnie, Winnie's looking at me like, what the hell does that mean? And no disrespect to, to French, but I don't need to explain to her what it means as long as the kid in the ring understands it. If he understands what see the fight off means, I'm okay, right? The same way when I watch someone like a, like a respected trainer, like a Joe Gallagher, Joe Gallagher will say stuff in the corner and I'm like, huh? But I have to trust that Crawler, Quig, Paul Butler, Charlie Edwards, whoever it is, they understand what that shorthand is, what that code is. And what they can do in their head in the 35 seconds left before the bell goes, they can decipher it and go, that's what he wants me to do. I'm going to go and do it. It doesn't have to be intelligible to you. It doesn't have to be intelligible to me. If the fight is confused, then it's a problem. So now let's zero in on a time where we have seen a fighter visibly confused, right? And look, let's be honest. There were times when Joe Gallagher's told this fighter to do something and you're like, I'm not sure he's taught him how to do that based on what I just saw. But that's fine. Maybe he did and the kid forgot. I don't know. But there have been times like that. But the worst one we saw was when Robbie Davis Jr. was with Dominic Ingle. And it was open conflict in the corner. That's what happens when you get your cornering wrong. Yet no one says Galahad needs to leave. No one says all of these guys that are there need to leave. I, I don't hear that. I don't hear that about Dominic Ingle. What, because he's an Ingle? You can't criticize an Ingle? So in total, what I'm trying to say to you is you only have 60 seconds. And by the time the kids sat down, you probably have about 54 seconds to get really complex ideas across. And you spend week after week in camp distilling those down so you can thin slice, right? See, that's what the code is all about. 
you you hear expressions like work the circle. You hear expressions like just manage the distance. You hear expressions like you need to get your angles right. In those glib statements is a lot of detail. That's that's what the camp's all about. The camp is about making sure that your boxer can operate on command without loads of explanation. And for all of my military people out there, isn't that the same thing? Is that not the case that in the army, I haven't got time to explain in great detail what's happening. I have to give commands and you have to know what those commands are. So when people say Tunde doesn't know what he's doing in the corner, look at it this way. Lions in the camp may mean a sequence of a hundred different instructions. Empty the tank may actually mean, look, keep throwing the punches you're throwing at a higher pace and higher intensity. As long as Anthony Yard understands what that means, it doesn't matter what fucking Norman on Twitter thinks. It doesn't matter what racist Lee thinks. It doesn't matter what racist John thinks. It doesn't matter what those guys think. It matters what the fighter can take from the instruction. So when people are there criticizing Tunde and saying he can't do this, he can't do that. Who else has taken someone from where Anthony Yard started and got them a world title shot that quickly? Joe G with Crawler, salute for that. Uh, Tony Sims with Lee Purdy? Maybe. But there are a few, like, there are a handful of guys. Tunde's in that company. Tunde Jai's in that company of a Tony Sims, of a Shane McGuigan, of a Ben Davison. He can hold his head high in that company. And when people say, why don't more fighters go to Tunde, I'll answer that for you. You can't live with his training. Most, most boxers today can't live with the volume you've got to do with Tunde. You've got to be physically durable to do that, and a lot of boxers aren't. And, and look, as a counterpoint, Tunde and Spencer Fear and do their own show, and they've said some dumb things about certain people, and they've been confronted about it. So it's not like Tunde's this angel who does anything, but what, I tell you what, he's not, though. Like he's not out there just needlessly trolling with no basis. And I think a lot of people, and this is what we're supposed to do as a boxing community, we're supposed to regulate this sort of stuff and go, okay, you don't like Tunde. Tell me the truth about why you don't like Tunde. It can't be down to his coaching ability because like I said before, there's only a handful of people that could have taken someone like Anthony Yard and got them a world title shot. A handful. So it can't be down to his coaching ability because everyone that's trained with him speaks highly of him, right? In the sport, the people who have worked with him speak highly of him. It can't be about fight tactics because Anthony Yard has lost twice. Once to Sergei Kovalev, who, for the record, is a damn good light heavyweight. And once to Lyndon Arthur, in a year where he lost two family members to COVID and had to fight in an empty arena and had to deal with all sorts of grief. So it can't be tactical. And I think what we see now, real... Re it reinforces that it can't be tactical. Okay, I just don't like the guy. Now, when someone says, I just don't like, they're lying to you. So what is it you don't like about him? Let's, let's drill into it. And often there's no real reason because there are other people they like with the same traits. I like the people who say, listen, I just don't like black people. Fuck them. I can live with that. At least you're being honest. Don't try and hide behind logic and go, oh, it's this, it's that. It's not. 
And I'm not saying everyone that, that dislikes Tunde Jai is racist. What I am saying is there's a lot of racism hidden in there. Because I'm still waiting to see the people tell Chris Billum Smith to leave Shane when he loses, because no one did. Now, do you know what I mean? And I don't think it's the right thing to do, by the way. I've said it numerous times leaving your trainer doesn't solve everything. When Dubois lost to Joyce, uh, Martin Bowers was all, I mean, he was okay. When Denzel lost to Felix Cash, no one said Denzel needs to leave. When Mark Heffron lost to Denzel Bentley, no one said Mark Heffron needs to leave. Why? Where was the same energy? But Zelfa Barrett had to leave. Now I'm going to hear Lyndon Arthur has to leave. And that's because people act like they really know. And I was talking to, to a friend. I don't want to heat him up by putting his name out here. And I was saying, the issue we have with boxing is everyone believes their opinion matters. Even people that don't buy tickets, they believe their opinion matters. I'll just save you the hassle, right? My opinion doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. All that matters, fact. What happened in the real world, what is going to happen in the real world. If you can't cope with that, boxing's not the sport for you. Yeah? Go back to torturing cats. Go back to upskirting women on the tube, whatever it is you weirdos do. Because how can you genuinely believe that your opinion is that important? What, just because you've got 140 characters to express it, it suddenly becomes important? No. Leave Tunde alone. Let him do his thing. Let him train his fighters. Until you're prepared to have the same energy for everybody else that messes up. Because what you're going to hear in the next few days is, ah, oh, without James Cook, none of this would have been possible. Right? That's what you're going to hear. And it's absolutely ridiculous. So most of us who have done our miles in the amateur scene, we know James Cook. We know James through the Pedro Boxing Club, right? Lovely man. Now, he's a guy, I mean, you see me shake hands and you show him respect as an elder, as a guy who really put it down for the sport. In the same way I show that respect to Clifton Mitchell. Um, you know, same way I show that respect to Joe Gallagher. You show you that respect to your elders, guys who have put it down. But look at, just, just pause and say, okay, if this guy was a game changer, if, if he was the reason why Anthony Yard was able to win, let's start listing all the world champions that have come out the Pedro Boxing Club. There you go. And that's not, that's not a slight against him, by the way. It's just saying James Cook has an MBE for doing amazing things in his local community. He's a great example, he's a great mentor, he's a great sounding board. He's all of these amazing things as a human being. He hasn't got a formula for churning out elite level talent like a Brendan Ingle did. He hasn't. Like, these, are just, these are just facts. So whatever the magic dust is that he sprinkled, it wasn't training. But what he is, is he's someone that everyone knows and respects. So he can come in and he can just give advice here and there. And look, I've been in that position before where trainers have said to me, look, just come into the gym, just have a little look, tell me what, what, what you think could be done better. And I might come in, run a session, do this, do that. And I've done that numerous times. I'm not the reason why those kids went on to win something. I'm somewhere in that mix 
bit further down, yeah. But I'm not the reason. The people putting their bodies on the line, wrists, elbows, shoulders, the people putting their time on the line to invest in the fighter, they're the people who deserve the credit. So I understand what Tunde means when he says we were a rudderless ship. Not necessarily. Well, let me rephrase that. You can be a rudderless ship and be heading in the right direction, right? What the rudder gives you is the ability to make subtle changes so you get there in a more efficient way. And if James added that, that's cool. But that's a rudder on a boat. Someone had to build the boat. Someone had to make sure the boat was like seaworthy and all of these sorts of things. So you have to really think about, look, give Tunde his due. Don't try and take it away by, and I've seen people talk about this and say, ah, James Cook, there's no school like the old school. Oh, shut up, man. Shut up. Because everyone's looking for a reason to take this away from Tunde. Everyone's looking for a reason to take it away from Anthony Yard. And I, I'll come back to the point. We all know James Cook. If James Cook gave me advice, I'd take it on board. Because I trust he knows what he's talking about. But would that mean that James Cook was the reason I achieved anything? Probably not. He was part of that mix, 100%. But I have to give people credit according to the magnitude of what they delivered. And I don't want to hear that in the coming days, that without James Cook, Lyndon Arthur would have won that fight because that, that would just validate everything I'm saying about people not wanting to give Tunde the respect he deserves. But let's steer this back to, to, the, to the nature at hand here, right? So this adds further complexity to the light heavyweight picture now. So Anthony Yard's got his, I think it's WBO International and the Commonwealth. And so he's parked up waiting for the winner of Callum Johnson versus Joe Smith Jr. So the earliest he can fight for the, the winner of that title is probably like July, August next year. But he needs an interim fight. So what do you do with him? I think Frank's learned his lesson and said, I'm not going to put him in with anyone dangerous. So don't expect Anthony Yard to fight anyone British anytime soon. Expect them to go back to the formula of highly ranked Eastern Europeans with questionable records. They won't risk it again because they need to get their money out. <laughs> Let's just strip all the nonsense aside. They need to get their money out as quickly as possible. Um, if the DAZN thing happens and... You know, BT have to change gears. That also becomes a factor. So I don't think Anthony Yard will fight any of his domestic rivals. I'll put it out there now. I don't think Frank will put him in harm's way. And I feel for guys like Spider Richards, because Spider will be watching that fight going, that's the Yard I want. Give me him. Joshua Bartz will be watching that going, give me him. Because that's how we make real money. But I don't think, that, I don't think we'll get the fight. And I think as fans, we need to just prepare ourselves for the reality that there are a load of fights in this division we will never get to see. In terms of Lyndon Arthur, he could go anywhere, right? Quick win on a Black Flash show somewhere, and then you start petitioning the board for a fight with like a Dan Aziz. I think Dan would take that fight. I think Dan saw enough there to say, ha, huh, this is be another Hosea Burton type fight. I'll take that all day. You know, if you ask Dan to be brutally honest, Dan would tell you, he thinks he hits harder than Anthony Yard. And he thinks he keeps his power more consistently than Anthony does. But the only way to find out is to put them in there together. But that, uh, a win like that gives you energy about the light heavyweight division. 
But boxing history teaches us that we're not going to get the fights we want. So I'm just saying, guys, be prepared to be disappointed. Because I don't, I just, I just don't see Frank putting Yard in harm's way. And I also don't see Lyndon Arthur sticking around at Queensbury. Don't think he needs to. You know, now that he hasn't got the belts, I don't think Frank's that bothered if he went to Sky or not. And maybe if he went to Sky, you could then, you know, I mean, rebuild fight with Andre Sterling and go from there. I don't know. But if you were to say to me now, how are you doing your light heavyweight rankings? I don't think they've changed. Do you know what I mean? I just don't think they've changed. I think Callum Johnson, Callum Smith are more proven at that level. And then Craig leads the rest of the pack. And then you can just shuffle it any way you want after that. that that's my view. And you've got you to gotta do it on who's been tested the most. And of the, of the new breed coming through, Craig Richards is the guy that's been tested the most so far. But what this fight also does is it points to the dilemma Frank's got. Where if you look at Frank's stable, it's... It's like a pizza seven minutes in, isn't it? Like, you can see the cheese is melted, which is a big tick. But the, the base hasn't quite crispened up. You haven't got that golden hue to the base yet. Now, if it's a stuffed crust, the cheese inside the stuffed crust hasn't started to melt either. And so that's where Frank is. Like, you've got Dubois on the road to redemption. Joe hasn't really had a fight that matches kind of where his public esteem is. Now you've got a load of guys like Archie Sharp who are still bubbling under. But nothing else. Not nothing else, I shouldn't say that. But a load of those guys are bubbling up, but they're not ready to cross over is what I should say. And so Frank Stable's in this weird position where he's, he's going to have to move people on quickly. But who do you move on? Archie Sharp at 130? Why not, man? Put him in with a Jamel Herring. See what Herring's got left. That might be the accelerant he needs to move his career on. Based on yesterday, I wouldn't be moving guys like Sam Noakes and Dennis McCann too fast. I just, I think they've got all the ability in the world, actually. And I think being around Eddie Lamb, Al Smith is a good thing. But for the divisions they're in and the people who hold the belts in those divisions, they don't have enough tricks. They don't have enough tricks to compete at that world level. So there's no point in trying to throw them in too early. Ah. I like what they do, like by all means. I love what they do. But the problem is, when someone stands up to it, there isn't a gear that they can shift into. There isn't a plan B. There isn't something else. But that comes with time. But that's, that's, that's the criticism you could level at a lot of people in Frank's stable right now. So if I'm Frank Warren, I'm banging the drum going, guys, I've put all of these people on TV and no one's putting their hand up and showing me that they, they deserve this platform apart from the Al Smith guys and you know people say ah you're biased towards Eddie Lamb and maybe I am but Eddie's not been wrong on much when it comes to boxing if I'm being honest with you he hasn't been wrong very often maybe if Bradley Skeet was still with iBox maybe you know that fight would have gone differently we'll come on to that in a second but I think Frank's got a dilemma especially yeah as we said after that Hamza Shiraz performance who on Frank's stable are you looking at going, I'd pay 20 quid to watch him in a top-level fight? But the issue that worries me, and I look at it wider than just Frank Warren, is 
if you look at Sky, you look at Zone, you look at BT, they're really building stables for the hardcores. Like, there's not much in the way of crossover appeal. You've got, Eddie's got Lawrence, he's got Dillian, he's got Derek, and he's got Connor Ben, right? Derek's probably a year and a half off retiring. Um, you look at Dillian, Dillian's probably five or six good fights from retiring. A lot of those guys are closer to the end than they are to the beginning. Conor Ben's still untested, still hasn't given us a fight where we can go, yeah, this is worth pay-per-view. So Eddie's struggling. Sky, they have some names and they're going to probably play off the Olympians. I think we're going to see Fraser Clark on the Amir Khan undercard. Fine, and you've got Khan and Brooke, but how many fights have they got left? The rest of, that, the rest of their roster is pretty much for the hardcores. And it's the same with BT Sport. And so I guess this shows that boxing's just gone back to being niche again. And it reinforces the importance of someone like an Anthony Joshua. Because Joshua's the only guy that really brings mainstream coverage to boxing. The sports, yeah, sorry, I should add Tyson Fury. I forgot all about him. But essentially, they're the guys, right? Uh, Billy Joe... God knows what's happening with Billy Joe at the moment. Josh Taylor's with ESPN, so he hasn't really got a mainline UK broadcaster. I know they say Sky, but you're on at two in the morning. And, you know, you look at McHennessy, Isaac. The rest of it is like the McKenna brothers. That's for the hardcores. A lot of this is just for hardcore fans. And we're not that big. I don't care how busy your timeline is. Hardcore boxing fans do not drive the boxing economy. But you see, all of this points to a, a deeper issue in British boxing, and that's the fact that there's no talent. So I've spent this weekend watching the ABA quarterfinals. I've, I've watched some of the development stuff um, and then the junior stuff. I've seen a lot of that stuff. And I go back to when I first got into the ABAs, and that's like 2007, 2008, right? Because that's when I first had people I knew who were really serious contenders for titles back then. And I remember how hard it was to get out the Southeast divs. You know, like you could fight six times to get out of London. And then it's just a continuous run, you know, regionals, quarters, semifinals. So you could win the ABAs on 10 fights. All in the space of like three or four weeks. I'm not, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that. But what it meant back in the day was if you got out the, the London division, you were one of the three best boxers in your weight class in the country without debate. And four of the other people that didn't make it out of London would have been in that top 10. It was deep. In those days, it was deep. Do you know, like that period from like 2007 to 2010, 11, where you had guys like Javan Young, Dwayne Sinclair, the division was deep. So when you, when you made it to the ABAs, it was a big deal. That's why attendances used to be really good in the 80s. If you made it to the ABAs, quarters, semis, finals, you were good enough to be pro. And so this weekend I'm watching, I'm seeing where's the standard at? And you get a few nuggets of quality. Um, in, the women's, in the women's side of things, I was really, really impressed with, uh, what's her name, 69 kilo lady, Jodie Wilkinson actually. And she boxes out of Tigers and Leeds. Class. What I liked about her was she looks like, if you walk past her in Sainsbury's, she just looked like standard woman. 
I just someone who has the estrogen in their system. Oh, yeah. But you could see, like, when she started to work, you're like, actually, there's a there's a hell of a lot of muscle underneath there. And so she was fighting a lady called Amara Taylor in the semifinals on Sunday. And she bullied Amara Taylor. And the thing is, there's a lot of social media energy behind Amara Taylor. People see her as the, the next coming. Now, in that weight class, which is 69 kilos, I mean, benchmark, Sandy Ryan without question. Other notable mentions, I'd put in Stephanie Rowe. And I'd also put in Stacey Copeland. I thought, you know, Stacey at 69 was a hell of a fighter. You know, is Amara Taylor at that level? Nah, of course not. You know, she's not. And what's happened is because of the whole Instagram boxing thing, you have people now who focus on trying to look good instead of learning how to fight. So I, it, it's when I see people doing the whole jerking their head from side to side. You know how Shannon Courtney does it, you know, while they're rolling their fists, but they do it so far out of range. You're like, what, what does it really mean? And so you see all that social media attention focused on her and you go, she, she could become a good boxer in the future. There's no question about that. But right now she's not ready. And then you kind of see someone like a, like a Laura Stevens who boxes out of Far Cotton in Northamptonshire. And you think, she looks ready to turn over, but the judges don't like her style. So she's never really had the break. And she's also had to deal with people like Stephanie Rowe year in, year out. And like, I don't know where Stephanie Rowe is. This is where I look for guys like Jamie Ingleby. And I go, where's Stephanie Rowe? But I say that just to say that the quality has gone down a lot in the last three or four years. And I don't think that's just a boxing thing. It's a societal thing. People just aren't as strong people aren't as motivated to fight anymore. We're just becoming a softer nation in general. And so when I watch the, these ABAs and I think, okay, so who's really going to make it in the pros? You struggle, right? There, there were guys like Rampton Musa might do it, but he's already with GB. Courtney Bennett, my lad, is already with GB. Um, and then the kid that, that he lost to today on a cut, uh, Harvey, is it Harvey Dyke? Yeah, Harvey Dyke. He's got a future. Now, maybe not a heavyweight because he was—he just looked fat as hell. But he looked like he could fight. But there's not many. The rest of them just look like ranked novices. There was another guy as well, boxed out of the East Midlands counties. Uh, I was going to call him Trade the Truth. It's not. Trade Dubry. Yeah, he looked good as well. He looks like he's got a future. But that's about it. There's nothing else there, you know, and I know the Earlsfield people get annoyed when I say this, but they've got a guy, Omar Augustine. And the fact that that guy's gone through to the final tells you how weak the division is because three or four, five or six years ago, he'd have got cut in half with body shots. But in this era, he can do what he wants. So I feel for Frank and I feel for Eddie. And that's why they're having to look further afield for talent because we're not producing in this country. The, the quality kids aren't walking through the door and where they do, most of the coaches are mediocre. We should have retired Joe Gallagher. And that's no disrespect to Joe. We should have retired Joe where Joe should have said, all of these young coaches coming through are doing stuff I don't understand. But look at Joe. Joe's on like act three of his career and he's like, I'm feeling better than ever because these youngsters can't compete with me. So salute to Joe. Um, ben Davison's been able to come in and do his thing. And I know people criticize Ben. But I salute Ben because he's he's 
got the ball and he's running with it. Um, Billy Rumble, out of Rumbles and Sitting Bourne, he's doing his thing too. Shane McGuigan, these young guys are doing their thing. Bobby Mitt, who's training Isaac at the moment, he's doing his thing. So they're all doing their thing. Big Don Smith's doing his thing. But are we moving the sport forward collectively as trainers? We don't talk much about boxing. We don't communicate much. I speak to Don a lot. Like, we share ideas. You know, not not for me saying, oh, look at me. I help making the trainer he is. No, we're just people who are fascinated and, you know I mean, passionate about boxing. So we talk. If he learns from me and I learn from him, bonus. Because I've learned a lot from him. Definitely have. And it's it's changed how I view certain things. And so I always thought that our generation of trainers would be better at communicating and sharing ideas, understanding that we all rise together. But it hasn't happened. And that's why the, the OGs like Joe Gallagher and so forth, that's why they're comfortable for a while because we're not ready to, to take the throne. So they'll be there for as long as they want to be. But we are, we are struggling with talent. Um, I wasn't impressed with many people who boxed in the ABAs this time. They, they look like novices, like, they look like guys who should be doing the developments. They're, there's a degree of polish you need, I think, when you box in the ABAs. That's why normally the guys who win it have 40 or 50 bouts because there's a degree of polish. You've got to know your way around the fight and you've got to know your way around the tournament. You know, today was hard for me because, like, you know, my guy Courtney Bennett didn't make it through, got stopped on a cut. It may be the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. So he got cut in the quarterfinals on Saturday you know drop the guy with a peach of an uppercut if you can find that on YouTube please do that I might I might tweet that actually beautiful like, I remember teaching that move I'm so proud Ooh. but he sustained a cut because the guy was reckless with his head and this is what happens with novices novices are reckless with their heads because they panic and they behave like rabbits in headlights so Courtney wins comfortably gets into the semis but he's got the cut now here's the problem on Saturday, the doctor that had the glue... Now, why these doctors don't all have identical kits is beyond me. But the doctor that had the glue had left early. So Courtney's now there with the butterfly sutures, which isn't the best way to heal a cut if you've got a box tomorrow. The glue would have allowed time for the collagen to start forming over the cut and would have accelerated recovery. We skipped that, right? So you get to Saturday and he boxes this kid, Harvey Dyke, who's talented. He's a southpaw, probably carrying far too much weight. But he's probably been boxing since he was young. He looked like he knew what he was doing. But he was reckless with his head. So whenever he was in, he started just shaking his head from side to side. The referee does nothing about this, by the way, which the referee should have done if he was doing his job. So in doing this, the cut opens up. And at this point, I've got Courtney winning the fight, right? There's a minute and a half to go in round three, and the cut opens up. Courtney goes to the doctor. The doctor says to the referee... Ref, how long to go in the fight? The ref says, I can't tell you. Now, the doctor's like, so I can't tell you whether the fight should be stopped or not because if it's two, if it's two minutes, 50 seconds to go in the fight, maybe he doesn't want to carry on. If it's one minute to go, he should carry on. So it's one minute, 30 to go. I'm looking at that going, Courts can see this out. He's experienced enough now, he can see this out. And so that the doctor and the ref are having an argument. So the ref's like, ah, forget it. I'm just going to stop the fight. On that whim, 
you stop someone going to the ABA finals on that whim. That's kind of one of the reasons why people don't bother with amateur boxing. That Amateur boxing kills itself through things like that. And look, I'm going to humble myself and say, I've seen Courtney win fights on cuts before and I've seen him lose them. So it's something that happens in the sport. But do we have to go back to headguards? I don't know. Because those kind of cuts can impact you in the pros. So I, I, I don't know. I think the rest should be tighter on the, on the head thing. You know, this whole, oh, but you got to let them box inside. None of, these, none of these boxers have ever trained to box inside. It's just a melee in there. It's a mess and it's disgusting. And through that, kid's just got his head cut open. And then through the cut, he's had his dream of winning the ABAs stopped. Not, not through his own efforts, but through the panicked decision of a referee. I thought it was disgusting. You know, like, so I stopped watching everything after that. But overall, the standard is poor. It's poor. And I know people are going to start saying, well, okay, what do you, what do you actually pin it down to? Well, you see these shows, and Dennis Hobson does them, Errol Johnson does them, Steve Goodwin does them. You see these shows, and you've got all of these guys on there, and so-and-so is making his debut, and he's doing this, and he's doing that. And none of them have had more than three amateur bouts. It might even be like, I mean, I've seen guys that have had no combat experience and they've been given licenses. So if the quality standard is that low to be a professional boxer, why bother going into the amateurs? I come back to my point. If you were to say every professional boxer needs 40 amateur bouts, the quality available would improve immeasurably. And I've asked this question before in Ring Talk, and Steve tried to fob it off with it. With a, and it was a piss-poor answer. I'm not afraid to say that. I'd say it if Steve was here. It was a piss-poor answer of, well, look at all the people who wouldn't have had chances. And so I'll go back and i say, that's the wrong way of looking at it. What would those people do if you put them in the ring with decent amateurs? They'd get their asses handed to them. That tells you they're not any good. And so boxing's got this small horse scene that's basically full of trash. It's 85% it's trash. Guys who could never do anything in amateur. And when they even come to spar in amateur gyms, they get beaten up, right? That's what the small horse scene's full of. But they're selling the dream. And then when you see Frank dropping down and doing York Hall shows, these kids are turning over before they're ready. They're turning over before they're experienced. I think there's at least... 20% of license holders that could and should be in the ABAs right now or in the developments. That's how bad it is. And that's why, that's why the product you see on screen is terrible because trainers are incentivized to tell you to turn pro. Why? Because it's better for their profile. It's not better for you. It's better for their profile. Managers love it. Because it's like, look how many guys I've got. You know, I can keep Frank pleased. I can keep Eddie pleased. I can keep so-and-so pleased. But none of this benefits the boxers. So there you go. You end up, you get seven or eight fights and you realize the same for you. And all you do is go, I should have stayed amateur. That's what people say. I should have stayed amateur. That pro thing wasn't even worth it. Should have stayed amateur. I could have won the ABAs and that would have been me happy. So if you're asking me, who are the people to look out for in five years? I'm like, oh, God knows, man. 
I don't think I, well, I definitely won't be recording this five years from now because it would just make for depressing listening. But look, man, I'm touching an hour and I didn't intend to do that, but I need to do an episode on Devin Haney. Probably not until midweek. So I've processed that, the tank fight. And then you've got to process all the media that comes out of that. But this will come out. And then I think I'll do one with Porky. So that'll come out midweek as well. So no, no, you get to hear my voice as often as you want it. So guys, take care and have a great day. Bye. Everyone wants to ignore that, but 99.9% of them would not have been able to perform at any level. They wouldn't have been able to come at their house and be comfortable with what I went through in 2020. You know, I've got no more grandparents left. Like, no more grandparents. Um, like, that's, that's not something that's easy to deal with, you know. I've got no dad left, you know. My, my, my dad's gone. And all this happened in a short space of time. And then I had a break. I had the Spellman fight. You know, I'm trying to, okay, I've got a victory, you know, I'm getting a bit happy, but I'm still thinking about the negatives. And then, boom, another family member goes. And then, bro, fight week of the last fight against Lyndon, no one knows what I was battling. I saw my head was not there in that fight. You could see me going back to the wrong corner. You know, I, my head was all over the place.